2: My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, a host on the channel. Today, I interview New Yorker, New York writer, Benjamin Lohr. Benjamin Lohr is the author of Hellbend, a book that explores the Bikram yoga community and movement, and the book for which we are meeting today, The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket, published in 2020. The Secret Life of Groceries takes the reader to hidden, dark parts of supermarket life in the US and of the globalized world of supply chains um, that are connected to this um, to the supermarket. Specifically, Laura's book talks about stores like Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Aldi. But what's more important, uh, it, this book goes deeper into the side of the story that um, the consumer is most certainly not aware of, unless he or she is a, is a worker of this vast and growing industry that is the business of groceries. Lore argues, however, that the consumer is not marginal to this story because we are the ones that embrace and crave packaged, even cartoony looking labels. Consumers in the U.S. want new snacks, new products to put in and on our bodies, not even fishermen in Thailand are outside of this chain. As Lord, um concludes his book, what the fishermen at the end of the supply chain in Thailand wanted after this, um, this specific case, after he had accumulated some cash, was to go back to his village to build up a, a, a grocery store. The entire chain, from the point of sale in Whole Foods, Bowery, New York, to Thailand, was what Lor calls a dark, has what Lor calls a dark side, an almost concealed chain chain of links of truckers riding across the nation, working for a hundred dollars a week, to migrant forced labor in Thailand, uh, which is what makes possible to have this aisles and aisles of perfectly organized goods all the time in our um, grocery stores in our supermarkets here in the United States. Um, the secret life of groceries also takes us back to how some of these intricate commodity chains and complex economic systems evolved in American history and that is also why I'm so glad glad to have Benjamin Lohr here with us today in in this channel of um, economic and business history. Welcome Benjamin.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Before we start with the book, um, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Because it is common to invite academics to this channel, and and I was so excited when you agreed to be interviewed. Um, if you can tell us a bit more about your background and how how this project came about.
1: Sure. Sure. So I, I definitely wouldn't self-describe as an academic. Um, I'm a writer first, a nonfiction writer. I uh, I... You know, I have a background in education. that's an entire parallel life where I was a high school teacher, and and I and I think that actually plays into a lot of my writing in the sense that education is a very nurturing community of like nurturing personalities who are who are really education is about educing or like pulling uh, behavior out of people. And when I approach my nonfiction projects, it's it's kind of with a similar energy that I'm trying to uh, let. Characters speak for themselves and let people tell their own stories. And I'm trying to get as close to them as possible while they're telling their stories. Um, So some people call this like immersive journalism, where I'll kind of like throw myself into various situations. So for my first book, Hellbent, uh, which was the exploration of the Bikram Yoga community, I just did gobs and gobs of Bikram Yoga and got very close uh, to that world. Uh, And ultimately, the book was pretty dark in that it was a kind of a pre me too story of, of, an abusive sexual predator guru, uh, Bikram Chowdhury. But I think a lot of the storytelling really, and, and the reason that I uncovered and broke that story was because, uh, I got close to people and and they came to trust me and see me as somebody who would tell their story on their terms rather than on my terms. Um, and so that's how i approached the grocery industry which is not a cult yoga community but is a, a claustrophobically secretive industry full of uh, very low margins lots of trade secrets um people who believe that you know they're going to be betrayed or their their proprietary information will be uh you know someone will be able to take advantage of them and, and, and I, in a similar manner, just tried to get as close to various people in the supply chain as I could, whether by working alongside them, um, tracking them down to where they live, following them on their rounds uh, as, they, as they went about their day, um, or just like copious interviews with them. And, and so that's kind of my approach as a, as a writer. And, and then, you know, you couple that with lots and lots of research on the back end to kind of fill in the cracks.
2: Yeah, no, it is a fascinating book. I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, but it's really dark. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder what, you know, every time I go to the grocery store now, I think twice. Um, but uh, your book start actually, it starts with a gruesome scene of how the fish, um, the eggs of whole foods are cleaned every day. Um, well, you don't, you don't seem to, to define it really clean but
1: not every day probably (laughs) every other month or once a month to every other month okay um it's probably the problem in that scene
2: okay (laughs) um so uh but you actually uh what your book does really well i think is that it goes from the top to the bottom of this supply chain and uh, and you start with um so you start with that a scene which kind of makes the reader know that we are entering a very dark um, story. But um, let's just start with Trader Joe's because that's when when you when you meet actually the top of the you know of the um, of the supply chain and and you meet with with the founder. Tell us more about how how you know the story of Trader Joe's and when you met with with Joe.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I guess I would say I, it's funny. Like I, a lot of people, you're you're 100 right that a lot of people think the book is very dark. I don't think of it as very dark, uh, or maybe I just think of the world as kind of uh, a dark place in general. And store is certainly no more or less dark than a lot of other aspects of our world. Um, and so that opening metaphor you talked about, I really like. So it's it's not just a metaphor in, in the book. I go and as you as you know. Um, but someone who hasn't read the book might. Uh, I go um, and look at the cleaning of of the fish case at a Whole Foods, which over the course of the month that they don't clean it gets absolutely horrifically disgusting on the bottom, um, and there's all sorts of rotting fish and and, and and nasty things. But at the top where they're selling the fish, uh, you know, separated by all this ice, it's it's very hygienic. It's clean. It smells good, and the, and the fish are are perfect for sale. And so for me, that distance where something can simultaneously have that uh, hygienic, clean qualities and be covering up nastiness for me is, is really what the, the grocery industry is all about. Like it, it really is a dark miracle in that it's, it's a beautiful uh, thing that provides so much for us. But a lot of that comes with pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to go to your question on Trader Joe's. Um, I mean, Trader Joe's is just a fascinating place. And so I was lucky enough to spend time with Joe Kalum, who's the founder and president of Trader Joe's. He founded the chain back in the mid-60s, and it was actually an outgrowth of a, an earlier chain that he had started in the 1950s. And really, Trader Joe's was central. When I when I was first pitching this book to, to editors, Trader Joe's was the thing I wanted to understand because... Uh, I had never seen anything like it before. I, I didn't grow up with a Trader Joe's, um, but actually I was researching that Bikram book and I remember I went with a group of yogis to a Trader Joe's and they got so excited about being inside this grocery store. They were It was like kids in an amusement park where they were like giddy and grabbing all these different items from the frozen things and bringing them to me to show them to me. Uh, And I just couldn't believe there were grown adults who were this excited about a grocery store. And then, of course, the people who work at Trader Joe's are notoriously happy and well, like, smiley, um, like almost pathologically chirpy. Uh, So that I became really interested in how this place existed that, one, created so much of an attraction between the consumers there, managed to keep its employees happy, and was seemingly a place of of high value with, with low prices, or at least perceived as low prices. Um, so it was this fascinating, you know, for me, it was a fascination, like I wanted to understand what made it tick. And, uh, and talking to and I guess I walked in thinking like, Oh, there must be some scam here. <laughs> you know, there, there must be some there's no such thing as a free lunch. So you can't have happy, well paid employees, low prices, and uh, like the most unique products on the planet. And, and to some extent, there are the same problems that befall all of grocery stores uh, fall, fall upon Trader Joe's. But, but Joe did some very unique things um, that help kind of both understand why Trader Joe's is legitimately unique and how the grocery system as a whole functions. Um, so he kind of broke with tradition in these ways, which is like most grocery stores are predicated on volume. Like I said, it's a very low-margin industry. We're talking one point five to three point five percent margins, which is just tiny. So they have to make their money on volume, and and that means for for years people would have thought that they just had to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, have more offerings, uh, more products, and and you're going to have more volume, and therefore you're going to eke out more money through your your low margin. Um, And and essentially in America, almost all grocery stores to this day use that. And and historically, they've just crept upward from the first supermarket in 1930 was about 9,000 square feet, which is a little less than half the size of a convenience store of today, to to the Walmart superstores of today, which are 125,000, you know, these epic, giant, you know, airplane hangers um, of, of a store. And They're also based on this idea of continuity, which is that whatever you want is going to be there. And it's it's something that as a consumer we don't take for – we take for granted. Um, But the grocery store manager is kind of in this constant scramble to put and ensure that the things that we expect are on the shelf. Like a stock out or an unavailable item is the horror of most grocery store managers. And that sets them up in, in certain ways where they can only stock their store with certain items that are in this, the commodity game and that are available in continuous supply. Um, and therefore, when you're a store, you really can only compete with other stores on those terms. And what Trader Joe's did... Um, was one, Joe recognized that he was just a small guy. This was back in the 60s when he was just found, founding. And he could never compete with the, the larger stores, or, or rather the only way for him to compete with those stores was to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and it was that was always going to be an unstable race to the top where one or two people max could exist there and, and they would win on, on having a low price and everyone else would kind of be in their shadow. Um, and he saw that way before it became true. But of course, this is what's happened to the marketplace. There's been massive consolidation in grocery since his time. Um, you know, right now we occupy a place where Walmart is the number one purveyor of organics, I, like some, some ironically in many people's minds, but a, a number one grocer in America, um, precisely because they can grow that big and, and their only real competition probably is gonna be Amazon, who aside from acquiring Whole Foods is getting into grocery in a big way um, and also promises that kind of size advantage. Um, and Joe recognized this and he decided he just didn't want to play that game. So he slashed his inventory, um, which allowed, you know, I should say one of the consequences of this volume is that the buyers for the grocery store never can get much expertise over the product lines they're buying because the average store to this day has about 45,000 individual items. The bigger ones have again in the hundreds of thousands of individual items. Those are just numbers that as a human, you can't you can't get mastery over 15,000 items that are in your category. It's just not a, a, a sensible uh, the human brain isn't meant for that. You, you what you have to do is you end up as just kind of clicking on replenishment buttons. And just treating everything like it's widgets or, or, or numbers that you're um, you're buying more of, and, and taste and production values and ethics and all of those get subsumed um, and or, or not paid attention to nearly as much. So that um, Joe decided he wanted to empower his buyers. He wanted to cut down his offerings and let his buyers kind of get expertise. So at one point, Trader Joe's was down to about 1,500 as opposed to 100,000 in these big stores' items. Uh, and that really allowed his buyers to kind of understand the supply chains better and therefore innovate for their consumers. And, and kind of the same like Steve Jobsian way of creating products that his consumers didn't even necessarily know they wanted. Um, and so these would be adjacencies. For instance, it's really hard to compete for the lowest price on peanut butter, no matter how smart your buyers are, because um, say you know it's a it's a commodity good. It's pumped out in continuous design. But if you study the the nut production line, you you know, and you you understand its nuances, you could start to grind almonds, which you know in the, the mid seventies was unheard of. Um, it, it takes a slightly different ma- machinery than, than grinding peanuts, but that's an adjacent product that, that Joe figured, or Joe's nut buyer, a guy named Doug Rao, figured uh, his consumers would want, and so so he started doing that, and 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 then do that all through the product line. So instead of trying to maniacally get the best price on can- canola oil or or vegetable oil, get into something that. You know, now is more commonplace, but then would be obscure, like avocado oil and and get the best price on that and then educate your consumers around that so they understand it. And His his big, big example that he he told me was, of course, canned corn. Um, He would he was vintage dating canned corn um, and selling it to consumers with like a complicated backstory about how it was all sold from this one field, I think in, in Idaho, but I can't remember exactly where it was. Uh, and you know, he would have to compete with Japanese buyers for the the rights to this one field. And then he would put it in a can, put a date on it. And, and, and all of a sudden this product that is kind of in our minds, definitionally commodity, definitionally continuous canned corn as boring as you could get, gets a story behind it, becomes differentiated and can become, you can price discriminate on it so that people think they're getting a great value. On canned corn, especially if it does taste better, Um, and so that's that's some of the 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 intricacy of Trader Joe's, but um that's actually only a small taste but enough because i've rambled
0: i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash nbn50 to get 50% off
2: no but that is um I mean you made lots of good points is that also this idea of big everything in one place uh but then Aldi is probably you know the opposite to that to that and that's you know and it has had also successful story in the u.s i mean i buy at aldi just because i don't have to choose
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely aldis and trader joe's are very similar and in fact as you know um all acquired trader joe's in the late 70s um and and they did that because they recognized that this was a business model that they understood and that was very different from all the other um all the other Grocers in America, which were sizing up, Aldi was born out of World War II um, and kind of the 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 destruction of Germany in World War II, and they they built up these very small stores that, as you said, kept very low skew counts, stock keep like individual item counts, and would do spend almost no money on advertising. It was a very low frill thing, and and they would just use manufacturers and have them compete off each other so float a price for uh, a jar of mayonnaise that they could sell and then you know have several manufacturers compete on that price sell it with almost no markup and it became an almost impossible model for people to beat um and so it grew very quickly uh and then you know trader joe's is very very similar except for instead of no frills Um, Although Trader Joe's has almost no advertising budget, they did – they couple a lot of marketing. And so Joe put a lot of emphasis on targeting a specific demographic of consumers. He really wanted – he kind of recognized that there was going to be this growing professorial traveler class that didn't really exist in America in the 1950s but would. It was was kind of uh, concomitant with the growing middle class. These people who are, you know, he oh, he called them overeducated, underpaid, Volvo driving professors um, that um, would want to eat the way they thought. They were learning new vocabulary. Um, they, these were often people who are coming into the middle class with parents who hadn't gone to college. So they, they were learning new words and they were traveling to new places, travel, you know, the, the 747 really democratized travel. And that was something that Joe seized upon. And. And so they were going to want to eat differently, and and so so unlike Aldi's, he started coupling a lot of, you know, you could call it marketing buzzwords, or you could call it different appealing phrases and and ideas that would really appeal to this set, and and that kind of further honed the products that he was selling.
2: Yeah, no, fascinating story. Um, my favorite part of the book, and that this goes with Aldi uh, was actually your experience with tracker lean or line. I, I'm
1: not yeah, yeah. The other.
2: um I I just could not stop reading about all the little bits that make up this very difficult job on life. Um, and when you finish the book, you revealed that, that lean was close to be broke and uh, with no not a lot of alternatives for her to be employed uh, somewhere else mostly because of how much this job takes from anyone uh, that works in the in these uh, fleets of trucks um and you also mentioned that many married couples uh, worked together as truckers um if you can tell us a bit more about you you know, the case of Lean and other women and uh, tracking in America, but also I'm intrigued by your perspective on how the industry is shaped um, by gender and race and how, how has tracking evolved as a masculine? I mean, you say there's a 5% of trackers that are women that as a masculine, white, blue collar job. and, And does anyone not part of those categories is in some way, undermined underrepresented they don't get to have this dream job that that apparently is what they sell you at the beginning and have a difficult time in the job right um because they don't feel like they belong they cannot make their end ends meet um yeah if you can talk a little bit about yeah,
1: that it's all exactly right and it was very different than I think that my mentality walking into the book as to truckers you know I had this mentality that truckers were these blue collar teamsters, Jimmy Hoffa, kind of Smokey and the Bandit, outlaws that were middle class ultimately and 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 living a job that that maybe I was secretly even envious of and and thought maybe I would like to be a trucker for a few years you know I don't know if I wanted to do it forever but it sounded kind of fun and the truth is that trucking is an industry that has been deregulated over the last 40 years to a place where the trucker has been right, you know, basically turned into a disposable part of that system. Um, It is, um, it's, it's really good rendering of what can happen when, when we use an abstract word like deregulation. Um, And so, yeah, basically going back to the late seventies, early eighties, when trucking was kind of a more, regulated cartel industry with only a few characters and was thus very easily unionizable. Um, essentially it, 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 they expanded the number of carriers, which allowed just about anyone who wanted to get involved in the industry to get involved. Um, and that caused the trucking industry to reinvent its model, um, into one where it was trying to, you know, it's competing like pretty ruthlessly on price. Um, and so the individual trucker is also competing on price and it's very very hard to find and land a a good trucking job at this point which i can basically only i mean probably the most helpful way of categorizing it is just with the stats the annual turnover rate for the trucking industry over the last 10 years is between 95 and 116 percent that and that's like pretty crazy that means that in any given year, a hundred percent of the people who are hired leave that job, whether because they just quit in disgust or are fired or move to another job. But nobody is sticking around in these jobs. They're not life or jobs anymore. Um, and uh, the reason they're not life or jobs is because they're pretty terrible. You're trapped in a truck, you often sleep in the same place that you're working all day in a little bed in the back. Um, you're working 70 hours a week minimum, uh, because that's the federal, I mean, it's both the minimum and the maximum that you're allowed to work. There are large, you know, according to federal law, um, which because it's in a race to the bottom is what you have to work to survive. Um, and you're often what, like you said, were lured into the profession with the promise of good wages, and the trucking industry often gets these new recruits to take out lots of debt because you need a commercial truck driving license, which is not something that you can get on your own. Um, you know, you have to take classes for it, so you, you take out student debt to get your license, and then often you'll take out even further debt to become what's known as an owner operator of your own truck, which is essentially just a lease agreement on your truck, but it, it turns you into um, someone who's beholden to a single carrier. The person who's given you the money for your CDL or for your truck uh, will right into that contract. You can no longer compete on the open labor market. You can only take loads from me. So uh, amidst this rock bottom l- labor market, you're, you're Stuck with one person, and often for a large part of that, because you're still a trainee and you're still new, and you don't necessarily um, have that CDL yet, or you just have it and are still um, learning how to be a a professional driver, um, you'll be being paid even substandard training rates, which are lower than even you know normal rates. All of which just adds up to um, a labor market that can't really move around freely is stuck in in a uh, actually physically grueling conditions and if they don't play ball because they're it's in their contract they can't go to another company and work are really stuck with with the position they're in and, and can't you can't negotiate so they either have to stay put or get bounced out of the industry as a whole um, and, and take on enormous debt in the process um so yeah it's a staggeringly oppressive industry for anyone and then like you said um I think which is true pretty much for any sociological finding these days that all of the oppressions that exist for anyone are you know more true for women and, and you know minorities that um you know, there, these oppressions are just compounded when there is it on them I mean, in a trucker. Any trucker is extremely vulnerable. You know, you're out in the middle of nowhere on these roads on the highway, um, uh, by yourself, if you're by yourself or, or with a, a partner, if you're driving team, which is where, where two drivers just alternate shifts by one person sleeps in the back. And you're essentially living in a small box with a stranger. um, it, that's a terrible situation to be if you're a man, if you're a macho man, um, stuck with another macho man who's extremely aggravated. But but if you're a woman, um, of course, it's a whole other level of vulnerability because you're you know, stuck living with this man. And every woman that I talked to over the course of the book had a story of, um, being sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, or knowing somebody who was sexually harassed or sexually assaulted in a very you know intimate way, like these weren't just stories that they heard as gossips, but they had a friend who was raped, or they themselves were assaulted by their trainer um because it's just structurally set up that way when you're 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 sitting and working inside of your home with another stranger um so yeah, yeah, it, it's as an industry, it's 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 a lot grimmer than I gave it credit for. But in another way, it's actually very emblematic of the labor market as a whole in a lot of groceries, which is all these low prices that consumers are getting, and there's no doubt that deregulation has delivered that. Um, come with big cuts to to laborers.
2: Right. Yeah. No, I thought it was brutal. <laughs> um, um, You mentioned, uh, in the introduction, you mentioned this concept of the business of desire, and I was also very interested in, in that idea. And you talk about, you know, this design, this process that goes into, uh, the sign of snacks and food trade shows. And, um, and you talk to another woman, Julie, who works, uh, doing this, um, so, the, I mean, that part of the business seems to be less overwhelmingly male, but um, it still sounds very scattered and competitive and, and unstable. <laughs> and, um...
1: Sure. So, so for first, you broke up for just a second in the middle of that, but I think I got the gist of the question, which is talking about food manufacturers and food producers bringing items to shelf. Is that right? Yes,
2: that's correct. Sorry, I'm breaking up. I'm not sure why, but everything no, is being no, <laughs> probably
1: just the, it's just the internet mm-hmm. But I but I got most of it. But yeah, that's a you know, that was another fascinating area. I didn't really know what to expect. Um but, you know, I, I I assumed that if I, you know, I make a good guacamole and if I want to put it in a bottle, then I could probably sell it and it wouldn't be that hard to, to do that. And I think a lot of people walk around thinking they have some food product that they could probably get on shelf and it's way better than old El Paso's bunk salsa. So like, why is, why are these greedy co- companies like not making the good stuff and really traveling around with this woman, Julie, um, who made a product called slasso, which is her combination coleslaw salsa, uh, a relish alternative. Uh, really changed my notion of the of what it means to be a manufacturer because not only are you competing against other manufac I mean other manufacturers so if you're making a relish like Julia's you're competing against um, ketchup and mustard and and traditional relishes um, pickles but you're also competing against the store itself which has reinvented its business model to some extent. Uh, As more of a landlord that's leasing space, uh, less as a kind of open market where the best things products are going to be there. So Julie would constantly be hit up for actual payments for for inches on the shelf anywhere, or for free product, or for buy one get one free opportunities that these retailers could then use to sell uh, at a hundred percent markup, and that um, you know that really changed. My notion, it also just changes the food that's available. It means the cost of getting involved in, in CPG food is is much higher than, than it used to be. It's really hard to do what Julie was trying to do, which is to grow yourself from kind of the farm stand to the commercial kitchen to the co-packer to the manufacturing plant and slowly build up a business base um, because of these entry fees. You kind of have to have a lot of money up front, which just increases the risk or demands that you partner with a venture capital fund, which of course does operate as kind of a, a sieve um, or bottleneck that you know' going to favor certain types of products that, that those um, gatekeepers are familiar with and so I think that definitely has some effects on on what's what gets to market. Um,
2: yeah, no, very, um, I definitely, that was one uh, um, step, one part of the story I, I wasn't, I was totally unaware of. Uh, so, uh, but even though, so the world of groceries seems very well connected and scheduled and, um, but still each of these stores um, has its own history. And I I also want you to talk a little bit more about Whole Foods uh, because it's also a unique one. A uh, unique story, I mean, and um, and if you can uh, tell us a little bit more about your research process of the of Whole Foods because you worked <laughs> at Whole Foods for um, kind of what you wanted to do for tracking, but they decided not to do. <laughs> I'm imagining, uh, but Whole Foods was a little bit easier, and you went through the entire onboarding process, right? Um, how did you negotiate your position as a writer and um, even as a field? Researcher with with working at this fish counter. I guess that's how you got yeah. to know all this <laughs> about so hygiene. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I think it was a. As I said, like in the beginning, I really like to try to get as close to things as possible. I wanted to write about the retail floor experience. I, I very much didn't want to root that entirely in my own experience. So that section is, you know, it's a first person section based on my experience working at the chain, but it's also informed by lots of interviews with other employees that I met along the way. But essentially I I decided that at some point for this grocery store, I book, I had to like work in a grocery store. Um, so I got a job at Whole Foods. I actually worked at a different competing New York chain for a brief period, just so I could get a sense of of what another chain was like. Um. And, uh, you know, it was pretty straightforward. I, you know, I'm not an academic, so I didn't have an IRB uh, breathing over my neck telling me what I could and can and cannot do. There were certain ethical things that I, I felt necessary. I told everyone that I was writing a book. I didn't tell them what the book was about. Um, I told them it was about my life. And then I, I let them fill in the dots about that. Um, you know, when I was on shift, there really wasn't any time to be writing or taking notes for the most part. I kept the notebook handy so that I could write on my breaks, but you know, or jot down ideas that came to me on my breaks. But I was, I was pretty present as an employee, um, throughout that process. And for me, it was just, let me get some first person perspective on a number of these issues. And, and so I could talk to other employees about their experience with a little bit more credibility, and a little bit more understanding than I would otherwise. Um, which was, again, like incredibly helpful. I, I, you know, I'm a writer, I've worked a lot of minimum wage jobs in my time, I've worked a lot of service sector jobs, a lot of retail jobs, waited tables, bartended, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but, they, those jobs have changed since I was in college 20 years ago and not for the better, um, you know, where, where I kind of look back on some of my waiting jobs and, and retail jobs with nostalgia um, and, and there have been real shifts in terms of what's acceptable and how you treat an employee industry wide. Um, probably the biggest of which has to do with scheduling. So back in the day when I was working retail, we would get our schedule a week in advance, um, up to two weeks in advance. And, and it was a pretty regular schedule. You worked like a certain days of the week and those were your days of the week. And you could swap shifts with uh, someone else if you ever wanted to switch things up. And it, it was that, that happened pretty informally, but you just tell your manager. Um, now at a lot of chains, there's something called variable scheduling Um, or just-in-time scheduling, which is its kind of cousin, which means that you don't have a set schedule. Your schedule changes week to week, day to day, um, and that you'll get that information just in time, which is to say right before your shift. Um, The ramifications of this are pretty obvious. It means that you have to really hold open all potential shifts because you're on the hook for any of them, and it means that for a minimum wage job, you can't really get a second job to supplement it, or it's much more difficult to because you don't know exactly when you're going to become free. Um, and you know, scheduling things like childcare is, of course, very difficult. Now, where I was working at Whole Foods, this was not the case. Whole Foods does not use just-in-time scheduling in name, but because it was kind of the industry standard. Uh, there were a lot of moments where we'd be asked to do essentially just-in-time scheduling by the manager. He would give us a new shift, you know, a new schedule. The shift wouldn't be posted till the day before, uh, and it, we would be kind of asked to be "quote-unquote" team players and play ball for the Whole Foods team because that that it was just the standard. And and if we didn't, then of course we would have to play for a different team at some other place. That was probably Doing just in time schedule full time all the time, um, and and that did have you know when you ask a lot of employees and there are studies about this whether they'd prefer a raise in wages or whether they'd prefer a steady schedule, um, a lot of them choose not a lot the majority of them will choose the schedule. It, it's that dehumanizing to get yanked around like that. Um, and of course, you know, these are jobs back when I was doing this that I looked at with nostalgia when I was, you know, a college, young person, entry level jobs. But for more and more people, these are jobs that they're doing over many years and are turning into many careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just a different landscape.
2: Yeah, it, it is interesting how how companies portray themselves towards consumers uh, but also towards the employees um, how this how they use language um, like fair trade and associates and team players um, to yeah. to legitimate you know this these pro- I mean pretty awful yeah labor pretty nasty marketing <laughs> strategies um over time you had the example of Walter um for when he wakes up every day at, I mean, not for his, when he opens the store in halfwoods um and he wakes up at 4 a.m. and um, yeah, and he probably didn't know about that time. I mean, that he had to do it until one day before. I think that's, that's cruel. I mean, that's <laughs> for me as a person that doesn't sleep well, for example, or that needs, you know, a mother, I, I wouldn't even know how to, how that's, even possible to do. Um, So uh, let's, let's go to the, to the last part of the book. Um, I'm also a big fish eater, um, though I may stop again after uh, reading about forced labor. I did stop a while ago when, when I read about, you know, um, decimated oceans and how, how bad we were uh, treating um, oceans. And, um, but also I did, do this when I, when I drove through California and through the five and through miles and miles of just cows and, and awful um, smells. And it's, yeah, I mean, you just realize what it takes to, to have meat on your supermarket, on your table every day. Uh, But tell us a bit more about this last um, part of the supply chain when you went to Thailand and, um, and, and, You know, where with this, uh, with this group of fishermen and with this, with this person, Tun Lin, who was working um, catching fish.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So this was my. I really wanted to get to the bottom of the supply chain, uh, and and this was. I went to Thailand and used the Thai shrimp industry as an example, but for me, it's just a microcosm of the bottom of a lot of different supply chains, Um, and this was important because again grocery is premised on this notion of continuous availability uh of of just endless volume of goods um and that what that does it's just an enormous appetite for for things that it's really hard to conceptualize um and the commodity goods that underpin a lot of these things are needed in such voracious demand that like the way I thought about them previously to the book doesn't really apply. And I thought about them, I guess, kind of like that cliched flow chart on an office wall. That's like raw materials extraction to manufacturing plant to um, exporter, to importer, to buyer, to store, to grocery cart. And that, kind of neat flow breaks down under the volume that it takes to, to, to stock, not just one store, but, but, you know, a whole chain of stores. Um, and so what you have is lots of brokers on the manufacturing level and below who are just buying up raw materials from aggregators themselves and from other brokers who are going around, um, And it becomes incredibly tangled on the bottom level so that as a buyer in the first world in America, you often don't have great visibility to what's going on deep in the supply chain because there's just too many different levels. Or the levels themselves are, are, are broken apart and, and kind of act as hiding mechanisms. Like you may have a great deal of clarity on who your five different manufacturers of a product are, but then who those manufacturers are sourcing from and the people those people are sourcing from or are outsourcing their labor to um, becomes very murky. And so the, all that murkiness creates a great opportunities for abuse. Um, especially in the in the world of labor, um, food being food, we have lots of legal and um, certificatory, regulatory uh, demands on quality and on its safety. Uh, all of which create, in the commodity side of things, kind of a floor that producers need to meet to be able to compete like you have to do xyz certification you have to use these type of refrigerators and this type of um, cooling system and these type of antibiotics um, to get your product to market and when there's a price competition with that type of floor one of the only places you can make cost savings is in the area of labor and so, labor is the place where prices get, where where price gets cut. And of course, you can only cut labor so much before you really get to places where people are living, you know, undignified lifestyles. But um, at the bottom of the commodity chain, that type of uh, really abusive labor practices do flourish. And and that's certainly what I found at the bottom of the Thai supply chain, um, where. I followed a migrant laborer from Burma who traveled to Thailand seeking a better life and was kidnapped and placed on fishing boats and, you know, forced to work against his will at the threat of beating. Really, there's no other word for this than slave. Um, You know, he was, he watched his friend get murdered in front of him. He uh, lost his hand in the process of working on these boats Uh, And, you know, this just truly horrific story. Uh, But by no means some like crazy outlier, this type of bonded labor, traffic labor, um, which he was a part of modern slavery was made up of, of, you know, the the, the actual percents get really murky. When I was writing, it was somewhere between 15 and 60%. Uh, which is such a wide range that it's unhelpful. Which, but but does speak to the lack of visibility that even NGOs who are studying this sector, sector, um, you know, really can't qualify qualify it that well. Um, but it, it's a significant. I mean, we're not talking like one percent. We're not talking about five percent. We're talking you know fifteen to sixty percent, um, which has a big effect on the price and does allow the price competition for. Um, you know the, the buyers back home who are uh, absolutely operating on our behalf as consumers, uh, and when we price consume, um, these this kind of like really horrific abuse overseas, uh, and, and no doubt domestically too. It's it, that's just not where I looked, but I'm sure it's happening here too. Um, to to really flourish, because there's no other place for those cuts to be made. There's not efficiency gains every year in the manufacturing process that are going to shave off those pennies. But but labor is always there as a way you can say that you saved a few pennies.
2: Right. Um, yeah, which is... Well, <laughs> um, so to conclude, I wanted to... First, I wanted to congratulate uh, you on a fascinating account, I think, on the American supermarket. Um, I think that it is impressive research. Um, It's an impressive research accomplishment that not only informs consumers of today, but um, about a space, right? That they spend a good amount of time through their lives, like you say in your book. But your book is also full of data, of detail about the industry, data that I think historians are commonly not able to get unless there has been an oral history uh, project, like you did, more or less. (laughs) The voices of trackers are in uh, in your book, for example. But, and you mentioned that there will be, there will that this industry is not obsolete. That there is more to write about the American grocery sector. What tons. What do you think is there, You know, is the future of groceries in the well, US?
1: I, I don't know what the future is. I don't have a great crystal ball. I do think there's tons more to write in terms of this question on labor. I mean, in any ways, it's like the question of our age: How do we? Prevent these races for the bottom from existing. Where's the point that you can intervene? You know, in the book, I've become very disenchanted with the notion that we're going to buy our way to a solution. That the kind of like voting with our dollars and buying the correct product is is going to become an answer, which was always the answer that we were told before. I would just buy the ethical salmon, not the like, you know, generic salmon. And and, and by doing that, you'll do the right thing. So I don't think that that's the answer. But then I do think. What what is and and how do does one go about reforming a supply chain and how do you empower workers in a meaningful, long lasting way? Um, how do you get work worker owned supply chains? To, you know how do you get certification regimes which we didn't talk about much here, but which are which are hopefully supposed to be guaranteeing these qualities we want in our food, but are in practice not doing a great job of that. Um, how do we get them to be? Worker oriented, so that the workers are the people who are actually doing that certification. Those are big questions that I think require, you know, I know a lot of really, really smart people are thinking about them, but there's still a lot more. Um, and I'm sure those really, really smart people would appreciate lots of help on it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, can you do you have a project? Are you working on a project currently that you want to tell us about?
1: Uh, you know, right now I'm kind of in the, like in between, I'm like lying fallow, as they say, uh, but I will be, yes, I have another book that I'm, that I'm starting up pretty soon and, uh, getting into that mode, but it takes a lot to, to, to switch gears for me.
2: <laughs> That's good. Um, well, thank you so much for, um, uh, being with us today, Benjamin.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, have a great one. Hopefully I didn't ramble too much.
2: No, it was it was fantastic. Um, thank you everyone for listening. With the lucky land slots, you can get lucky
1: just about anywhere.